Hey, it's Jed Hearn, host of Wizards, Warriors, and Words. If you're enjoying the writing advice on this show, you might like my new podcast, The Jed Hearn Show, where every week I share the best fantasy writing advice that I've learned from publishing three fantasy novels and a best-selling video game. There's over 12 episodes that you can listen to right away, including my top 10 fantasy books of all time, how to make fantasy names that don't suck, two rules that make writing effortless, and my complete summaries of Brandon Sanderson's and Neil Gaiman's writing classes, and much more. Check it out by searching for The Jed Hearn Show in your podcast app. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Wizards, Warriors and Words, a fantasy writing advice podcast. My name is Jed Hearn, author of The Thunder Heist, and I am joined by my fellow writer, Aaron A. Reed. Aaron, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. So this is a bit of a different episode. We're doing a solo interview with Aaron, who has just recently launched a awesome Kickstarter all about text adventure games, um, something that I am very passionate about, having written one myself. But before we get to the Kickstarter, which we absolutely will, um, I kind of want to start with the story that was my first um, kind of moment that I met Aaron's writing, which is Hollywood Visionary. So Aaron, do you want to kind of talk to us a little bit about what that story involved? Yeah, and thank you for mentioning it because I'm I, I'm really proud of that game and I'm so happy people you know have are still finding it and playing it. Uh, so yeah, this was a game for a company called Choice of Games that does choice based interactive fiction um, on you know mobiles and tablets and lots of devices. And uh, my pitch to them, so I, I kind of knew the guy who ran that company. He and I both came out of the same community making kind of more classic text adventures back in the day. And um, he'd been trying to get me to write a game for them for a while. And I finally had some time and availability. And I'd had this idea for years and years, like dating back to college of like a movie making simulator. So I was a film student in college and I had this idea, oh, it'd be a really cool game if you could like run your own movie studio and put things into production and set the budgets and fiddle with all these little details. And people have made games like that. None of them ever quite did, you know, the, were like the one in my head that I really wanted to exist. Um, and in my head, I was thinking of it as this very kind of simulationist game, right? With lots of math and numbers and behind the scenes, you know, all of this stuff to calculate, you know, what does making your movie in 3D versus 2D do to the box office and all this stuff. Um, but choice of game stuff is really narrative focused as it should be, right? And so thinking about how to actually make that work as a narrative story, um, it really shifted it in this different direction. And so it ended up being set in 1950s Hollywood. And when I was writing in the, the game, it was kind of in the aftermath of 
this kind of harassment campaign that had come out against a lot of indie game makers. And some of my friends have been personally kind of um, caught up in that and affected by it. So um, I set it in the 50s where you're this kind of indie movie studio. And uh, that's the era in American and Hollywood history when, um, uh, you know, the McCarthy era happened and, and independent filmmakers started to get harassed and, and everything for sort of following their vision and, and breaking out of the sort of the mold of what the big studios were doing. And so in my head, this parallel kind of started emerging between these two eras and these two different genres, even right movies and games. Um, but it became about how you be creative and how you make, you know, how you prioritize, you know, are you going to follow your artistic dreams versus something that's maybe going to be safer for the people who are working for you? How are you going to balance, you know, financial and artistic and all of these different trade-offs? Um, and there's still some of that simulationist stuff in the background of the final game. Uh, and that part's a lot of fun, but I think it's kind of presented in this really more interesting package because of that kind of journey of where it came from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, this was one of the, I think we mentioned this in our initial emails when we were discussing this episode, but um, I played Hollywood Visionary about maybe two years ago. And it was one of the first choice of game stories that I played and inspired me a lot in writing Siege of Treblin two years later. And yeah, I, I love the fact that there are so many conflicting goals and things that are going on in that game because yeah, you're right. It's, it would be kind of boring if it was just about like just making the movie, but the fact that it's about getting your studio up off the ground, um, making the movie, dealing with this whole red menace and, and trying to, you know, avoid the McCarthyism or, you know, rebel against it or whatever. And then like your character's personal life and friendships and everything it leads to this scenario where it's impossible to get everything done that you really want to achieve. And yep. <laughs> I really like that because it forces you to like focus on what you really want to focus on and makes you realize what matters for you. Um, in earlier versions of the game, you, you sort of touched upon this, but like, how was it different? Like, was it more, it was more single focused on just individual storylines perhaps or like how did it sort of evolve throughout it because I know for me writing my game it definitely changed a lot through the outlining process yeah I, I think something choice of games is actually really good at is helping their authors outline and scaffold things in advance because um, when you're writing an interactive story uh, you know and there's multiple options and multiple pathways the cost of sort of not having planned things out in advance and having to redraft things or rewrite things is just so much higher because it's kind of multiplied, right, by what yes. a linear, a normal novel would be. Um, so I tend to not write like that, actually, when I'm writing normal fiction. I tend to be kind of a pantser and just kind of wing it for the first draft, at least, and then go back and revise it. But um, they really, you know, kind of forced me to get more regimented about outlining things and figuring out, you know, for each chapter, what are the key choices and and think through all that stuff in advance so I would say it it didn't for me at least and also you know I'd come from a background of writing other interactive games so I'd been doing that for a while um, it wasn't kind of a brand new thing for me um, so the it was a fairly straightforward process like the the initial draft was was pretty close in structure I think the biggest thing that that evolved was um, just finding more ways for the choices the player made to um, come back later in the game. So one of the things in the game is that there's kind of three different people who you might kind of spend time forming a, a stronger relationship with, whether that's a romantic relationship. One of the characters is kind of an estranged relative who you could, you know, become closer to. Um, and um, 
as I edited it more, chances to kind of pay off choosing to develop one of those characters into someone you care more about in other parts of the story would occur to me. And I'd be like, oh, this scene, you know, if you spent the time to make this person more important to you, they should clearly come back and have this kind of, you know, unexpected role in this scene or whatever. Um, so it was a lot of just things like that, looking for more places where the player's choices could have an impact. And also to just outside the narrative and the characters on the movie you were making, right? So if you were making a horror movie, it's like, oh, in this scene, I'm going to have a reference to some people mixing fake blood in the background, right? I would just keep thinking of more little moments like that I could introduce at various points in the story to make it feel more and more like your choices had, in fact, you know, affected what was going on. Yeah, I definitely love that aspect of it, how... I think the best choice of game stories do that really well. Like they remind you of choices that you thought were inconsequential earlier on in the game and then bring them back either as these little callbacks or as things that actually have really dramatic impact. Um, yeah. Yep. What, what were some of the, the main writing lessons that you learned from the game? I know it was a while ago that you wrote this because it came out in, in 2015 or so, but I'm curious to know like how it might've yeah, influenced your writing going forward from that. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned that kind of stylistic change, and I think it actually did introduce me to some of the, the good parts of planning um, more carefully in advance. Um, and that that I think has carried over to some of my other projects since then. I, I used to feel that that was going to cramp my style or, or you know, that I couldn't be creative that way. But I've, I've definitely, I think, since that project come around more to like, no, this, this definitely pays off if you, if you uh, do some of it in advance. Um, so that was one thing for sure. Um, it was also a pretty short time frame, so I think all told, I think Hollywood Visionary is maybe 120,000 words, which is actually pretty short for a lot of choice of games. Games, um, mm -hmm. some of them can get huge, um, and I believe I think it's you know, 150. That, I was just looking. It, at it might be, yeah. yeah, yeah, that, Still, that could be right. Yeah, like um, on the for average choice of game stories these days, that's sort of like on the shorter side, but yeah, it still feels good. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course on any individual person's playthrough, you'll only see maybe 50,000 words of that or something. Mm. So, um, so there's a lot more, you know, in, in all of their titles uh, there than you usually see in a single playthrough. So, um, and I did it in a summer because I was still a grad student at the time. And so um, I bet that was the hole in my schedule basically is I had cool. a summer and I was like, Oh, I could write a game for you this summer and, and not, you know, be a teaching aide or whatever uh, to pay for my rent that summer. <laughs> so you wrote this so, whole thing in three months. Yeah, oh my um, gosh. which was so jealous. Which was pretty, yeah, it was it was a pretty accelerated pace. And it, it was kind of, you know, my only gig for that time. So so that was what made it possible. But um, but I, I tend to be a kind of writer who will work on something for a while and then put it away in a drawer for six months or a year and then come back to it. Um, and so you know, like a lot of my short stories uh, will be ones that I started like eight years ago and oh. every year or two pulled out, tweaked a little bit and then put back because I felt like it wasn't done yet. I couldn't figure out how to get it done. Um, so actually being forced to like, nope, in this one window, you've got to start it, plan it, execute it, draft it, finish it, edit it, um, was, yeah. was not usually how I work. So, um, but yeah, again, they're, they're, they have great editorial support. They have, you know, people who actually, you know, read your writing and understand how those kind of stories work and give you great feedback. And that was super helpful to have, you know, editors who are, you know, actually helping me improve the story, not just looking for typos and stuff. Um, yes. so that helped a lot to feel like I was, you know, kind of part of a team uh, making this happen. Um, yeah, it was a great experience. I, I, I hope to write something for them again someday. Well, I would certainly love to play it because I love that game. And yeah, it, it definitely made me think, okay, this is something that I really want to try creating myself. Um, awesome. 
shifting gears a bit, I'd love to talk about the Kickstarter. So do you want to introduce us to 50 years of text adventure games? Yeah. So um, this project started in early 2020, uh, just kind of a passing date somewhere uh, caught my attention um, that 2021 was going to be the 50th anniversary of the Oregon Trail, which a lot of people in my generation grew up playing. Um, and a lot of people don't know this, but the very original version of that game um, was a text-only game that you played over a teletype. And in the 80s, there was kind of a more graphical remake that um, got uh, pretty well known. But the original was a teletype game that debuted in 1971 in a classroom in Minnesota. So I was thinking, oh, you know, as someone who has written interactive fiction of various kinds my whole life, it, maybe it would be interesting to do something to commemorate this 50th anniversary because that's an interesting number. And somehow I got the idea from there to turn that into a blog series that ran during 2021, where each week I would pick a game from a kind of year chronologically starting in 1971. So the first week I'd do a game from 71, the next week I'd do a game from 72 and go through the whole sort of 50 year history of this medium. And each game I picked to do kind of a deep dive into how it worked, what it was about, um, really kind of get into what, what made that particular um, game tick. And that, um, so I started writing that in mid 2020, in mid 2020. And so I had a bunch of articles pre-written when 2021 started. It still was pretty down to the wire because it turns out writing one in-depth article a week for a year uh, is kind of hard. So, um, so that also is a thing that changed yeah. some of my writing style <laughs> and instilled a lot of discipline and, uh, um, and stuff in me that I didn't necessarily um, uh, natively have. But How it was also really against like other, other projects and other things you had to do. Uh, well, yeah, I, I was, I came at this from a really lucky position because where I was at when I started that was I had just um, started doing contracting work and I had landed a big long-term contract that was 20 hours a week, but was basically paying my rent and all my expenses and stuff. So nice. I basically was able to treat that project like a half-time job for um, the bulk of the time I was writing it. If I was entirely doing it in my you know, spare time and weekends, it might not have been possible to get it done in that time frame. Sure. Um, so I was definitely kind of coming from this, this privileged position, which was um, a, a unique moment in my life where I could make that happen, which was cool. Was the contract um, um, related to writing or was it a different thing? Or I'm just curious to know the specifics. So I've, I've, had a, I've had a very interesting career where so my interactive fiction work led me to grad school where I went to a program uh, with a bunch of other people studying interactive narrative stuff and then kind that of so through cool. that yeah it was it's uh it was a really cool program at the uh, university of california santa cruz with some really cool faculty and really cool um other students um and sort of through that and through the people i met through that um i did some stuff in ai and specifically character cool. ai for games so after grad school i was involved for a while in a startup um trying to make essentially more dynamic NPC characters for games, um, for digital games. And that was uh, really interesting. It didn't end up going anywhere as yeah. is the case with 95% of startups, but- um, <laughs> That is so cool though. Yeah, it was, it was a really fun project. And, and then this, this contract that let me do this project um, was similar work kind of developing um, NPC characters, but outside the domain of games, it was actually a program to try to develop um, anti-scammer technology. So when you get emails that are trying to, you know, defraud you uh, or your grandma of hard-earned money, the kind of concept is what if you could turn that communication over to a bot that would 
waste the scammers time and maybe get it to reveal information so like flipping the script wow, kind of on what cool. they're trying so to you're do using like a scam bot to scam the scammer exactly yeah um so it was it was really interesting and it was funny because it was really similar to writing characters for games but instead of very suspicious skeptical players you had these completely unsuspecting <laughs> scammers who would just go along with you know That's anything so your bot said they would just assume you know, maybe you were having a bad day or whatever, and they you know, wow, try to so keep funny. going. Yeah, <laughs> it's a really interesting project. Um, anyway, so yeah, um, so because um, uh, that was only half time, I was able to focus on this blog series for a bit, and it was kind of also too. Um, you know, it, it started right at the start of the pandemic, and I was you know kind of you know lonely and depressed like everyone else, and. Um, missing grad school days, honestly. And so mm. the idea of like spending a bunch of time when I was home alone, you know, or not going out with friends or whatever, like deep diving uh, into the history of uh, this genre of games that I like a lot um, was sort of appealing. And it was actually kind of therapeutic in a way to just have this like, you know, extremely ambitious project to just um, sink a bunch of my time and energy into. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely feel that like having uh yeah, having a really ambitious and creatively fulfilling project is like one of the best ways to to feel meaningful and, and fulfilled in my experience. So yeah. I'm glad I was able to do so, that for you. Yeah, it, it did. Um and so then the outcome of that basically was that I had um a, a book, a large book's worth of these articles. And so the sort of new iteration of the project now is um all of those um those 50 articles you know those 50 deep articles and all these games are being revised and turned into a book uh called 50 years of text games which is sort of um this broad look at um all of these individual moments in the history of computer games without graphics is kind of my my one sentence pitch so yeah it looks awesome uh i'm definitely going to be backing it as well it uh is currently at um oh, do, do you want to do you want to tell the audience where where the kickstarter is uh, you 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 might have a more recent number than me last time i looked it was at like one hundred and sixty-five thousand dollars or something like that so yep that's that's uh, all right that's yeah which is insane <laughs> like that is so so cool everybody yeah, that i've told about this is like <laughs> that's such a niche thing like text adventure games this guy's right. like done such a huge kickstarter for it do you think the nicheness has actually helped a lot in terms of running that kickstarter I think so, because, you know, anyone over 40 or 45 grew up playing those games. So there's millions and millions of people who remember, you know, that that history themselves. I think there's a lot of younger people who are really interested in it, even if they, you know, missed that the time when that genre was in its prime. And then, of course, there's still a lot of people writing these games in all kinds of forms. And that's one of the interesting things to me is, you know, the perception is that this is a really niche genre and it is in a lot of ways but you keep finding these games that are actually like insanely popular and influential. So I talk about like Dwarf Fortress, for example, which, um, you know, is uh, millions of people have played and inspired Minecraft, which is the best-selling video game of all time. Hmm. Um, there's games like Lifeline, which was the game from 2015 where you were texting an astronaut and trying to help him out of trouble. That for a while was the top-selling game on the App Store. Um, so you, you kind of just keep finding these games that are mostly text, right? That are using their words and their writing to tell their story and not really relying as much on graphics um, as these, you know, mainstream and influential games. They just keep kind of popping up in different forms and and wearing different guises. So I think that's really interesting. And, and I think um, the scope of the book 
is kind of moving beyond one particular genre, right? So it's looking at everything from text adventures to mobile dating sims that are largely sort of texting based. It's looking at roguelikes. It's looking at um, all kinds of uh, narrative games, experimental games, uh, all kinds of different stuff. And it's kind of capturing this really interesting broad section of gaming that I think hasn't really been all discussed together in the same conversation in quite the same way before. Um, so yeah, it's, it's cool to me. I think it's, it's niche, but it's, it's kind of surprisingly connected to, um, the rest of gaming in all of these different interesting ways. That's a good way of putting it. And I think, yeah, you're right. I guess this stuff in, in a way is, is like the, the kind of foundational, the kind of foundational pieces that have allowed other games to develop offer. And even within the scope of text adventure games, like I think, you know, choice of games have an email list of, of what is it like 50,000 people on there or something like that. There is still a huge audience of people who like this stuff. And I think the fact that it has both of the, like with novels, what's great about novels is that you can get your audience to imagine things that you would never have the budget to produce in a film. And what's great about games is that the player can feel a sense of control and a sense of immersion, like nothing else. And yeah, text adventure games are amazing because they blend those two things together. Like you get all the benefits of writing a novel in terms of being able to leverage the player's imagination or reader's imagination. And then you get all the benefits of the game being interactive and, you know, allowing people to really feel like they are living the story. So, and then you add that to the fact that like, it's a very low barrier to entry as well. Yeah, exactly. It becomes this like really interesting mixture where, yes, yeah, suddenly there are a lot of cool and, and innovative things that, that people are sort of doing within it. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely a genre where a single person with an artistic vision can tell an interactive story, right? It's a lot harder yes. to do that when you need to have, you know, a huge open game world built with graphics and sound effects and, and you know, all the multimedia that you expect from mainstream games. Um, uh, you know, we were talking about Hollywood Visionary, which, you know, clearly, I think, <laughs> even if you haven't played it, it came across that had a specific artic- artistic vision behind yes, it. And definitely. so many of these games are just made by soul creators with something to say, whether that's a cool world they want you to explore, whether that's a statement they have. Um, and it's just, it's really neat to to have a medium where one person can make a whole game and then and share that with the world. So I like that about it a lot. And I think that's something people are craving more than ever these days because like a lot of the the movies and, and stuff and tv shows that, that come out these days feel like there isn't that sole creative visionary behind it it feels like it's something that was made through a lot of focus groups and a lot of discussion <laughs> in a boardroom or whatever and that's fine sometimes at least with great stories when you are i guess writing by committee but i think a lot of people are like craving those more you know driven by singular artistic vision style stories and the ones that do come out like that um are the ones that i think people really resonate with and yeah i don't know do you think that's a do you think that's something that's sort of going on at the moment or am i just being yeah i I think so for sure i mean i definitely notice in myself there are evenings when I want to watch something on Netflix because, you know, I know it's going to have like a baseline production budget and level of quality and everything. But then there's nights where I'm sort of like Netflix just feels like most shows on Netflix don't feel especially edifying to me. I want to like read a novel or I want to watch, you know, an experimental indie film or I want to get something kind of more personal. So, Mm. yeah, I think we're in an interesting age where we just have so much high quality mass produced entertainment that's really good in some ways, but but if you consume too much of it, I think you do kind of miss 
more individual voices and and more personal stories yeah and i love the fact that like both of them can coexist right like yeah love yeah. the fact that marvel movies are doing their thing i really enjoy a lot of them and i also love the fact that like yeah soul game creators can make like a text adventure game which is a super fun experience um and it's yeah. cool that like we are now in a point where you can sort of do those both things but i guess like bringing it back to the kickstarter was that sort of the case in the early days like i'm so curious to know if you were someone who was trying to write like a text adventure game in the the 70s or whenever your book starts like what was the process back then like what sort of devices and companies were exploring this yeah it's it's one of the another interesting thing about this project to me at least is that this history is really also just the history of computers because it starts you know right when people were first getting access to some of the earliest computers and continues right up through the present day so you kind of inevitably have to you know go through this series of kind of cultural and technical sea changes that happened as computers changed and as um, people's access to computers changed so yeah um so when the the book starts in 1971 and that was still the era of mainframes so you didn't have a computer at home if you were lucky enough to work for a university or be a student in a university uh, or maybe a really big business that had a computer you might be able to get computer access but you probably weren't operating the computer yourself what you do is you'd write a program on um, a punch tape machine uh, which was not a computer it was basically just a typewriter that would um, that would kind of punch holes in a piece of paper tape or in a paper card that were the binary data of your program you would spend a while making sure you know every line of your program was what you wanted it to do you know double checking it for errors and then you'd hand that paper tape taper that stack of cards to a technician who would run it through the computer maybe in a day or two depending on you know how much availability there was and then you'd get uh the results back out which would be either a printout or another paper taper cards with the date of your output and then you'd go look over that and see if your program ran okay and and figure out what you wanted to do for the next revision so compared to what we have today where you can yep. just instantly get feedback it was this incredibly slow process that mostly happened offline right with just you sitting with your your code um by yourself um so when you when your iteration cycle is that slow that obviously really limits how much um you know how how fast you can change things if you discover mistakes how how quickly you can learn how to make you know the machine do what you want it to do so a lot of the early games in fact don't really come until you start seeing um, what was then called an interactive environment which is where you could actually sit at a keyboard type something into the computer and have it immediately respond to you um, and one of the, the early stories that I'm, I'm quite fond of in the book uh, was the game Hunt the Wumpus came out of a place um, called the People's Computer, uh, the People's Computer Company, um, which wasn't actually a company. It was kind of a joke because they were a very kind of hippie, um, non It does sound like a joke name for a company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but what their idea was, was they bought um, a computer, which in, in that time still, you know, was like a five or six figure purchase. And they set up this kind of public storefront where anyone could come in off the street and play with it. Um, and they had free classes, they had, um, you know, uh, meetups where people could come, but they were really trying to move past, you know, it's only scientists and, um, you know, quote unquote, the right people using computers, like computers should be for everyone. And what happened, which was fascinating, is this really interesting community formed up around uh, that place um, and and the people playing with it. And some of those people were interested in um, in trying to make computer games. And 
what um, what I think you see evolve out of that is basically one of the earliest computer game design conversations because one person would make a game, show it to his friends there, and then one of those friends would say like, "Oh, I know a way to make this better," and then they'd make their spinoff version of their game and then show it, you know, at the next meetup. And you had these games that were kind of evolving over, uh, you know, a period of weeks and months. So Hunt the Wumpus um, is is pretty famous as an early game. But you can actually trace it's sort of the third or fourth move in this conversation of games people were having that were iteratively improving on things that people were doing before it. And I think that's why you got it, you know, it evolved to a point where it was actually an interesting game that people thought was cool and wanted to share because it, it was able to kind of um, have that circle of feedback and 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 improve, which is really cool to see. Um, so, so yeah, um, communities have always, I think, been, been a part of this. Um, uh, that's where you get, you know, those conversations that challenge people and, and give them an audience, right, to, to want to make cool stuff for. Um, and the nature of those communities has changed as the technology has changed, right? So the internet changed how those communities could form, um, you know, bulletin boards a little before the internet were another way that that could happen. Um, but that's, that's really been an interesting thread is that when you get a bunch of people together who are all interested in doing the same thing and showing off to each other and improving on each other's work, uh, really cool stuff happens. So we start in that period where it's sort of these, like these smaller groups that are creating these games and, and giving feedback to each other. And then you mentioned that there's like, you know, there's people of a certain generation who just grew up playing these things. So clearly there was a point at which some companies like figured out how to kind of get this at a bigger scale, how to commercialize it and everything. How did that sort of come apart? Because I'm always interested in like seeing how people take things that are um, creatively and artistically fulfilling and figure out a way to like monetize them so that they can do them more so that they can do them at a bigger scale and kind of like spread them to more people. So I'd love to know how this medium sort of found its footing. Yeah. Uh, so it was a, a really interesting transition. So it's, it's really funny looking back on the 70s in particular, because the notion of um, someone buying and selling computer software, and even more particularly computer games, was still just kind of a pretty foreign notion, right? Like, so, so huge companies like IBM would give you software when you paid, you know, $200,000 for one of their machines, um, you know, you can maybe hire someone to write software for you. But there weren't, you know, you didn't go and buy software off a store shelf yet. That just wasn't a thing. And there's actually a really funny thing where in one of the early um, basic games called Star Trader, um, it's a sci-fi trading game where you're going around the galaxy trading goods. One of the goods you can trade is software. And the, people don't really get this today, but that was science fiction in the 70s when that game was first written. Right? <laughs> That's um, so good. <laughs> yeah. Um, We're living so, in the future. Yeah. Uh, so around 77, 78, what happened was you started to see the first generation of home computers. So a uh, cheap enough, small enough computer that a person could buy one at Radio Shack, take it back to their house and play with it as much as they wanted, um, rather than, you know, only being able to do it at their office or whatever. Um, and that, of course, then created a market for um, software for those computers. And uh, so you started to see companies selling at first productivity software. Um, around the end of 79, 80, you saw uh, the first um, computer game companies spring up. And one of the very first was a company called Adventure International um, that um, tried to market text adventure games for home computers. And this was an incredible challenge because that first generation of computers were so tiny uh, as far as their memory and, and storage capacity and processor speed. 
compared to even the mainframe computers of the 70s, that um, people just assumed it was impossible to put something as complex as like a computer game where you were moving around a map and fighting enemies and stuff on one of those computers because they would have, uh, I have I have a bit in the book where I say, um, uh, I have a paragraph kind of talking about this and I say, um, a lot of these games had to fit in a, an amount of storage smaller than the text used to store this paragraph, right? It was literally like a thousand bytes of, of, wow. of storage space maybe. Um, so it was, it was an incredible technical challenge to try to figure out how to get a complicated game running on those machines. Um, but there was this huge demand for it because people had played uh, some of the mainframe games of the 70s, like Adventure um, had been super popular and they could get pretty big because those computers even then could store you know, multiple megabytes of text, which is a lot for a text game. Um, so people wanted to recapture that experience of exploring these, these you know, cool textual universes on home computers. So there was all this motivation um and some of those early games just because they were some of the first to do it um sold incredibly well um another fun story from that period is so zork which was uh one yes. of the earliest yeah really uh, it was the first computer game to sell more than a million copies um is one statistic about it but it came out um uh in 1980 in 1985 it was still on the top of sales charts um because it, when it launched, it was basically the only thing in its class, right? It was the only adventure game with yeah, that level of Yeah, it was creating this whole new category for itself. That's yeah, remarkable. so exactly. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was sort of the 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 demo everyone would use to show off their new computer. Um, and so for a couple of years in the early '80s, everyone who bought a new computer wanted to get Zork so that they could show off, you know, what it could do. Um, so that's. Um, uh, that's kind of an example of right at the beginning of that industry, right? It was it was really small, um, but then obviously it expanded, and by the end of the '80s, it was a multi-billion-dollar industry, right? But um, but it was a pretty uh, meteoric rise, right? Like within ten years, going from not existing to being like a major market share in the entertainment mm. sector. That is huge. Yeah, I, I find that so fascinating, and I, I, that's why I'm so excited to to read the book because yeah, like. It's just so cool learning the history about all this stuff that I guess I've entered into like very late in the picture, but it's always in, like, it's always fascinating to see how those early influences have affected, you know, even companies like Choice of Games up until today, for example. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of the, the Kickstarter itself, this is your third Kickstarter and like the other two Kickstarters have been successful, but this is on a new, a totally new level. Would that's you say that's accurate? accurate? Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I really do like what you were doing with the other Kickstarters. It looks cool because I was, I was researching them the other day and they're all like so different. And yeah, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I've, uh, yeah, I think I mentioned earlier, I've had an interesting career. <laughs> yeah. So I've, I've bounced around between games, writing games, writing books. Now I'm writing books about games. So <laughs> kind of uh, been all over the map. It's very cool though. It's very cool. Um, <laughs> yeah. And actually, yeah, as a quick digressions you want to um just tell tell everybody about the the kickstarter that i found particularly interesting was the book where you're communicating with like the ai of a dead author oh yeah yeah so this was uh, a really fun project it was um it was extremely ambitious we bit off about three times as much as we could chew we kind of made it work but it was an uphill battle um yeah so so this project uh was a book and a game that worked together. So Icebound was kind of the unifying name um, of the project. The game was called the Icebound 
the book was called the Icebound Concordance. The game was called the Icebound. Oh God, now I've forgotten the name of my own game. Oh no. Um, anyway, Icebound. Um, uh, uh, so, oh, the Icebound Compendium. The Icebound. There we Concordance. go. There we That's go. right. <laughs> hey, don't worry. I like forget. I had a I had a friend asking me about a character in one of my books the other day, and <laughs> I was like, "Yes, that character that I wrote from <laughs> that book." So, and I've yep. only written like a few things, so I can one of those moments. Relate. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But basically, the, uh, when we started, so I, I made this um, with my partner Jacob Garby, and when we started working on this. Um, the iPad had just, the iPad with specifically with the forward facing camera had just come out, which enabled kind of early augmented reality stuff to start happening. Um, and we were both in a um, digital art um, grad program at the time. And we had got this grant to make a game that used augmented reality. And we were both kind of writers though. So we, we were like, okay, well, what if you made a game where you're communicating with this character, but you can show him pages from this book that comes with the game to change what's happening in the game. So essentially using the book as like an input mechanism to the game. So uh, the story we came up with was very meta, which if you know either of us uh, tracks. Um, so it was about a writer who died and left this unfinished manuscript behind about um, polar explorers and this mysterious Arctic research base. And in the future, he gets resurrected as an AI, basically, um, by a publishing company uh, that wants him to finish this book because, it, <laughs> like the mystery of Edwin Drood or a lot of other unfamous stories, it became really popular after his death. Um, all these people want to know how the story was supposed to end. So in the game, you're sort of collaborating with this kind of digital ghost of this writer who's sort of like totally lost, like he has no idea how the story was supposed to end, how he you know, what, what, what the ending was supposed to be, what the right ending is. And the book has all of these fragments of imagery from his life and, and from his stories. And um, when it works, which it sometimes does, I think um, it's this really cool thing because you actually kind of feel a bit like you're collaborating and having this conversation of like, well, maybe, the, you know, the ultimate theme of your stories is lost. So I'm going to show you a picture of, you know, your estranged daughter um how how do you feel about that right um, so it was uh it was really ambitious like i said but it was uh a lot of fun um yeah we did a kickstarter for that um that i think about doubled our pretty modest goal um nice. that game got into indicate which was really cool and igf and a couple other game festivals um and the technical part was pretty tricky because like i mentioned it was still pretty early days for augmented reality so we were using you know, pretty early unsupported libraries. And every time an update came out, it would break everything. And so there were a lot of um, technical obstacles to overcome, but uh, but it was a pretty cool project, I think. That is cool. Can people still get that? Like, can they order it off your website or something? Or uh, So the game, part of the, the problem with uh, it being so cutting edge was it was really dependent on a lot of things like webcam drivers and stuff like that. So it's the game still sort of works on some computers, but we basically don't support it anymore because so many, so much hardware now isn't compatible with it. And we don't have the ability to easily go and update it anymore. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's verging on being a lost game. I'm afraid <laughs> but, um, the price of but you can still see our, you can still see our really cool uh, trailer for it, which yes, <laughs> the trailer is very <laughs> epic. The trailer is very <laughs> epic. Really like that. That was something that um, that definitely impressed me about this Kickstarter as well, because uh, I'm, I'm working on a, a Kickstarter as well with a friend at the moment, not in writing, it's for a different thing. Um, but yeah, just like 
the amount of moving pieces that need to go into it and stuff is is really fascinating. And I'd love to get your take as someone who has done three Kickstarters now, and this last one is in particular has been a huge hit. Like, what kind of would be your best advice for people who are creative and they're thinking about doing a Kickstarter for a certain project they're working on? Yeah, it it, it definitely is a lot of work. <laughs> that is an accurate statement. Um, I think the single biggest advice I would give people is you really need to have done most of the work before you launch. Um, so, so much of it is about setting up, um, you know, if you're going to get media coverage, talking to people well in advance of launch to get that set up to go. It's about, um, you know, pre-writing some of the content you're going to drop during the Kickstarter people interested because once you hit the launch button and there's this you know, countdown clock looming over your head, it gets a lot harder to try to, you know, write these insightful, engaging blog posts uh, in the heat of the moment. Um, a, a lot of the work is just really front loaded. So um, coming up with a plan for, you know, knowing what your goal is, knowing um, what your audience is, who you're trying to reach, and then figuring out in advance, you know, how you're going to reach those people, what you're going to do to keep them excited. I, I make tend to make big spreadsheets with um, you know, potential audiences and potential things I could, uh, you know, drop or announce or reveal that would get their interest. So, you know, I might have a row that's like my Facebook friends. I might have a row that's like, you know, people who backed this previous project I did. Um, you know, I might have a row that's Twitter, right? So just like, what are all the places where I could reach people? And then it's like, okay, if I'm going to reveal, you know, a sample chapter from the book, right, for this project, like which of those groups, you know, would be likely to be interested in that? And then I kind of try to stagger those so that each of those groups is getting, they're hearing about the project a few times, but none of them is getting kind of overwhelmed with, you know, a constant bombardment of, of, of hype for it. Right. Um, so yeah, it's just, for me, I, I, uh, I think some people maybe don't prep as much as I do, but I really like to have that kind of battle plan and as much of that stuff kind of ready to go as possible so that, um, App, when launch day comes, it's just kind of like, okay, like we know what we're doing. Like Tuesday, we're going to drop this. Thursday, we're going to drop this. Um, go through the steps. Um, but yeah, preparation. <laughs> that is good. What What are some other like marketing tactics that you have kind of used for this one? Have you used any paid ads at all? Or has it been purely just like organic? What's the... Yeah, I there? actually have not. So I have um, historically been pretty good at word of mouth and pretty bad at um, uh, advertising and marketing. Sure. Um, in my previous campaigns, I have experimented with paid ads on, you know, social media sites, things like that. Um, you know, sometimes targeted ads on, on like a, a, a place where fans of that genre, right. Me might be reading or whatever. Um, and I just haven't had much luck with it. Um, so for this campaign, I really doubled down on, you know, this is going to live or die on word of mouth. So, because I started it as a blog series, uh, I built up a lot of subscribers from that. And um, kind of what I was hoping was because um, I had a paid option for the blog series, but there weren't any um, subscriber exclusive posts. So you could read you know, the entire content uh, for free. And um, I've kind of used this strategy before on some of my projects. I think actually, if you give people a free version and then at the end say, if you liked this, here's a premium version you can get too. Um, uh, for me, at least that tends to work pretty well. And I get a lot of people who are like, wow, yeah, this was really cool. I want to support you. So, um, so I think a lot of the people backing this actually have already read most of the book. They're just really excited about owning like a nice hardback edition of it, which, um, which, which I think is cool. Um, so 
so yeah, that, that was a big thing for me this time um, was really relying on that word of mouth. And one thing I did that I think in hindsight was pretty smart was I made a really nice um, page of ways people could help spread the word about the project. So here's a 50 word blurb about it. Here's some images about it sized for social media. Here's some links, um, not just to the project, but to like some interesting posts or some interesting content. Um, and, and I've been kind of including that in my updates. Like if you want to help get the word out about this project, here's here's a link with some assets. And I think that's really helped because a lot of people maybe, um, you know, are excited about the project and want to help spread the word. But if you sit them down in front of, you know, social media and say, make up something to talk about this, this project, they're not going to know what to say. So having stuff they can copy paste, having a way to make it so that they can reshare the project with just a couple clicks, um, I think actually has helped a lot and encouraged a lot of people to help um, help me spread the, the word about it, which has been really nice to see. Even um, something as simple as you had a line on the Kickstarter page that went something like, uh, if you run a podcast or a blog or something like that, and you want to interview me, feel free to reach out. And that's exactly how this conversation happened. So oh, nice. that is, oh, I'm glad that worked. <laughs> yeah, it definitely works. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've gotten, have you, have you gotten many other like interviews through that or whatever? Or it's it's those? mostly gone the other direction. So, yeah. so that was another thing I did in advance for this Kickstarter was I, I looked into a lot of podcasts and blogs that were covering retro games or that were covering, um, you know, uh, just different things that might connect to, you know, people who would be interested in this book and reached out. Um, I guess I started about six weeks, maybe before my launch date. Uh, to a bunch of those and just said, hey, you know, I've got this project I think your audience might be interested in. Um, here's my background. I can talk about these kind of subjects, you know, if you're be interested in having me on or write a blog post for your or guest post for your blog or whatever, um, reach out and let me know. Um, and and that's been uh, pretty successful. I've had had a lot of people reach out and say, oh, yeah, that sounds really cool. So um, so yeah, that, that kind of stuff this time around has really been where I've devoted my energy um, rather than trying to um, do much, you know, cold calls to media outlets or, or paid marketing or things like that. I've, I've really kind of gone all in on word of mouth basically. <laughs> um, but it seems to have worked for me yeah, this time, which is definitely worked. neat to see. I think, um, yeah, there's some good lessons and parallels here for, cause if, if you're listening to this right now and you're a fantasy author and you're going to self-publish, I think there's some fantastic lessons here in terms of the reason why Aaron's Kickstarter has been so successful is because you've built up that audience for a long time. Like you're clearly passionate about this. You understand what your audience wants and, you know, you're kind of uniquely positioned to deliver that in an interesting way. And I think if you're someone who hasn't published your first book yet, <clears throat> maybe you don't use Kickstarter necessarily, but just that idea of making sure that you're trying to build up an audience beforehand and really understand like what do fantasy readers want? That is the kind of thing that's going to allow you to have a successful launch in the future. So these are all like really good lessons, not just for people who want to run a Kickstarter, but for any creative who is trying to get a project off the ground. So I really appreciate you sharing that stuff. Um, yeah, yep, absolutely. I'd be curious to know, because this is a, as I just mentioned, this is a sort of fantasy writing podcast and I'm a big fantasy fan. I'd love to know like how fantasy has played a role within the evolution of text games and how it, yeah, how that is, how has sort of evolved over time. Yeah, it's um, it's it's definitely a big part of it. So, uh, a really interesting kind of thing you can trace in the early history of uh, computer games and specifically text games is what people's primary source of inspiration was. And there was this really interesting moment in 1974, uh, which is when Dungeons and Dragons came out, 
where before that you saw a ton of games being made inspired by Star Trek because that was kind of like the dominant uh, uh, geek property at that moment. Um, and after that, you saw everyone wanted to make a fantasy game inspired by Dungeons and Dragons because that was the new uh, cool thing everyone was talking about. Um, so yeah, a lot of uh, those early influential games um, were uh, just kind of uh, dripping in the fantasy tropes that D&D itself was kind of recycling from, uh, you know, things like Tolkien and, and Howard and a lot of other sources. Um, so one of the early games uh, that fits in that category is a game uh, that went by a couple names. It was known as DND, just the letters DND, not, not an ampersand, uh, and also called the Game of Dungeons. Um, that was released probably in 1975. Some of these early games, it's a little hard to date. Um, and it was uh, basically the first roguelike game. So if you know that genre, it's kind of characterized by a top-down, usually procedurally generated map that you're exploring and there's randomly generated monsters and loot and you're just kind of trying to continuously level up your character and stuff. Um, so Diablo was famously like kind of a graphical roguelike and kind of brought that, that genre into the graphics realm, but it originated kind of as a, a text only genre. And um, it's actually named for a game that came out in 1980 called Rogue, but uh, people were making games in that style earlier. And so this game from 75, was made for a really interesting educational computer system called Play-Doh that was way ahead of its time. So it had a touch screen that could show graphics. It had um, a high resolution monitor. Uh, and this was at a time where most computers still had like a, a text only teletype that kind of crazy. interface. Yeah, it was a really interesting system and it was basically designed. It was part of this huge government grant to try to um, catch US students up in education because there was a perception uh, in the early 70s that the U.S. was falling behind the Soviets and other countries. So all this money got poured into making this cutting-edge computer platform for students. Um, but of course, immediately the students, once they got access to this, started figuring out how they could make games for it. So, um, <laughs> and, and they made some incredibly elaborate games. Um, so D&D was relatively simple, but it kind of spun off into this series of fantasy games that invented a lot of the tropes that you see now in MMORPG style online games. So, so a key thing about the Play-Doh computers is they were all networked together. So it was pretty easy to actually make multiplayer games and um, get all the students in your class playing the game instead of doing their fraction lessons or whatever they were supposed to be doing. Um, so you saw these, um, you know, these like fantasy adventure games designed for like 10 or 15 players to all join together in a party. Um, uh, some of these games, you know, invented tropes like uh, end bosses or like, um, uh, you know, uh, just all, a lot of the stuff you see, uh, the dynamics you see in, in modern multiplayer games. Um, and just these like huge fantasy worlds that you would explore um, with text with uh, so a lot of these games had kind of very primitive line graphics. Um, one of the first kind of games from, with a 3D perspective was uh, for the Play-Doh system. Um, so, so yeah, that, that genre all through the 70s, uh, the fantasy genre was like really kind of the coolest thing you could port uh, to the computer and recreate that kind of experience for your friends. So um, definitely hugely influential. And I think the whole, the whole genre uh, text adventure, right? Adventure comes from uh, this, this sensation that fantasy often captures so well of like, you know, we're, we're going into this fantastical cool world. We're going on a cool quest. We're going to... Um, probably learn how to do some dangerous magic or, you know, yes. uh, make some terrible mistakes. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it really, um, 
you know, it, it was a massive influence on, on the origin of computer games. It's so cool to me, the idea of a text adventure game that is like multiplayer. I, I can't even wrap my head around how I would, if I would write something like that. Like it was so complicated doing a, a choice of game story that was just a single player. How, how does that work? Like multiple people going at it at the same time? Yeah. Um, it, so the first people to kind of try that basically very quickly realized that you can't just add a bunch of players to a game designed for a single player to play. It won't work, right? So, sure. um, so like a famous example is uh, Adventure, right? Which kind of named that genre and was one of the first big um, big text adventure hits. Um, uh, it starts off, uh, you, you, in most of the game, you're exploring a cave and it starts off above ground and you have to find a lamp that you can use to light your way in the cave. Well, if you add multiple people to that, the first one gets the lamp, goes down into the cave, and then everyone else is screwed because they don't have the <laughs> lamp, right? Um, so the, the very earliest hacks were basically people saying, well, I mean, technically we could add multiple players to this game. Let's try it and see what happens. But it just kind of everything broke, right? Because <laughs> because the the kinds of puzzles and stuff that work in that environment um, just didn't work with multiple players. So they very quickly had to kind of pivot to well, um, if you do have a lot of other humans running around this environment, the most interesting thing stops being the environment necessarily becomes the other humans, right? Mm. So what puzzles can you do that maybe require multiple people to be able to solve? Uh, what maybe instead of solving environmental puzzles, the focus more becomes uh, kind of player versus player puzzles, right? So defeating other people in combat or trying to best, you know, work, work your way up the ranks to become more powerful than the other players. Um, so a lot of the environment became more about supporting different interactions between human players than existing just kind of for its own sake, right? Or as a place to um, explore for exploration's sake. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really interesting in those early games, uh, those early multiplayer games, you can see um, them kind of discovering how to make a game for multiple people, how to make a, a simulated environment, right? That multiple people can have fun in, um, in real time as they're, as they're you know, trying things out and experimenting. Uh, yeah, it was a really interesting um, moment in that history. I've got two last questions for you and then we'll start to wrap up. The first one is, Having looked at all of these different games and having written a couple of text adventure games yourself, what do you think are the kind of patterns or commonalities or that you see in the games that are really good? So in other words, like what are the kind of broader writing lessons that you have learned by examining all of these different games? I'm curious if there's, if there's some sort of overlap or commonality between 50 years worth of, of these stories. Yeah, that's a good question. So I think one thing you definitely see is that I, I think hypothetically, there's kind of two different kinds of immersive games just in general, right? Even outside of text games, right? There's a game uh, that's basically like the holodeck on Star Trek where it's like, here you are in this fantasy world. Um, you can go anywhere, you can do anything. Uh, um, uh, it, it's just kind of a sandbox, right? And, and have fun. And games like Skyrim or No Man's Sky maybe are kind of trying to emulate that 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 feeling, even though it's obviously really hard to do. Um, another kind of game, though, is something where it might look like it's an open world where you could go anywhere and do anything, but actually there's a pretty particular plot the author has in mind for you to go through. And those games, in a lot of ways, can be more fun because, you know, as, as we and everyone listening to this podcast knows, uh, writers actually do know how to tell good stories. Uh, and, let, and letting one of them tell you a story is maybe not a bad idea. Um, 
But I think where you see that kind of game be really successful is when the author has figured out how to make you feel like you are the one discovering the story and you were the one figuring out how to do things, even though you're actually being led by the nose through the author's pre-scripted story, right? Yes. And it's, it's totally not bad to do that as an author. And a lot of amazing interactive games have, have you know, a pre-planned story. Um, but there's, there's something really magical about feeling like you're the one who's making it happen. You're the one who's discovering it. Um, so that's, I think, something that I think a lot of the, the, the famous games from the genre do really well. Um, and it's something that's maybe kind of hard as a, if, if you're setting out to write one of those games for the first time, that's not something you might necessarily think about for yourself, but a lot of what you're doing is really, um, kind of magic tricks, right? You're, you're creating a really cool environment with all this stuff in it, but there's actually only one really interesting detail that you want to look at more closely. And, oh, it turns out there's an interesting clue or the, the, the next piece of the plot behind that interesting detail, but you want the player to feel like, oh, I noticed that rock, what's under that rock? Even if you were really carefully sculpting that moment yes. so the rock was going to be the only thing they were going to pay attention to, right? Or even if you had it so that no matter what they chose to investigate, they would find the clue underneath right, it. Right, right, yes. yep, yep. So I, I think it's, it's, this, it's this very interesting kind of experience crafting uh, that you're doing when you're creating a story like that where you're, you're kind of trying to create this series of magical moments for, for your player um, that will let them kind of uncover your story in a way that's very pleasing to them in an interactive environment. Cool. That, that's a really good answer. Um, the other one I had is you have had such a varied and like, uh, yeah, just such a, how do I even describe this? Like such a, um, I guess, non-linear creative career by the sounds <laughs> of it. Like we've mentioned this a couple of times, right? But you've done so many different projects and uh, I'm curious for people who do aspire to have that kind of creative career where they are doing all these different things like <clears throat> what advice would you give to somebody like that or what kind of lessons have you learned along your own journey yeah I mean I feel like <laughs> I feel like a lot of people in my situation say this but I feel like I've been really lucky in a lot of ways because I've I've had a lot of freedom to experiment on things for various reasons um you know I've, I've kind of had that freedom to fail right so um, I can try something and see if it works, which is a real luxury. Um, I think um, to the extent that that any of my successes have been attributable to me, it's been because um, I have definitely, in all my projects, um, really pursued the um, figuring out uh, what am I trying to say? Like, what's 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 the non-compromising version of this project, right? So. So if, when I started working on text adventures, um, I was like, I really want to make like the best text adventure. Like what would I have to do to make mm. the best text adventure? Um, and I put a lot of time and, um, you know, a, a lot of uh, uh, energy into making that happen rather than just being like, well, this is just a little text adventure. No one's going to play it, whatever. Um, a, a joke I keep making is that I keep finding um, more and more obscure um, <laughs> projects to do. Uh, so I'm sort of taking the opposite trajectory of trying to make my work like more accessible and more commercial. Um, I've done like a lot of weird like experimental text games and, and things like that. Um, arguably writing a blog series about, you know, uh, <laughs> a, a supposedly dead genre uh, falls into that category. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, 
like I've done all of these weird things, but I've like really done them. If that makes sense. Like mm. when we, when we did this weird augmented reality game, it was like, no, we're going to like, we're going to really like go dig it. into, yeah. Making this uh, everything it can be. So, um, so yeah, definitely. I would say, you know, as advice to people, if, if you're working on something and you're not sure it's going to have an audience, you're not sure, you know, it's going to be commercial or whatever. Um, there are definitely reasons to maybe listen to that voice and say like, well, maybe, maybe this could pivot to something that's, you know, more marketable or whatever. But I think there's also a lot of value in, in pursuing it to where, where the project leads you, right. And like letting it become what it wants to become. Um, because that's a lot of the time how you get something that's really unique and really, um, you know, something that seems fresh and interesting. I definitely back that advice because I. It, it's funny that you use those words of like, I want this to be, you know, the best text adventure game there is and applying that sort of philosophy to everything that you're doing. Because I remember when I was starting to write Sage of Travel and I, I told myself that as well. Like there was, there was probably one period where I was like, I don't know, it might've been a day where I was just phoning it in. <clears throat> and I realized like, oh, you might never get another opportunity to do a text adventure game like this you should try to make it like the best thing you possibly can. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice is, is, is dying over here. <laughs> um, and yeah, like that attitude of just trying to make like whatever is in front of you right now, trying to make that the best thing that you have ever done and the best thing that exists in that genre. Like you might not never reach that high bar, but just having that goal will make it so much better than if you're just approaching it with this sort of disposable mindset of thinking that I just want to get this out of the way and, and get this done. So yeah, I, I totally back that advice. And that's something that I, I tell myself all the time. Like I always try to approach each book or each project with the mindset of like, I want this to be the best thing that I've ever written. And I think it was Christopher Nolan who was talking about that with his movies. He was like, every single movie that I make, I think is going to be the best movie that I've ever made. And mm. if you're not approaching it with that mindset, then why even bother? Um, attempting it in the first place so i really back that um yeah yeah I yeah like that quote so aaron's uh kickstarter 50 years of text adventure games is up now so you can go and check that out uh, i will put a link to that as well down in the show notes i'm going to be backing it i'm really excited to to read it um and yeah thanks for making such a such a cool and unique project it's gonna be yeah a I'm, to go I'm hoping a lot of people are gonna learn a lot and and get a kick out of reading it uh yeah thanks for having me on the show no worries. Thanks again, Aaron. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.